Ever deal with opposition? Sure you do. <laughs> you might be like, Todd, opposition is my middle name. Ever deal with opposition? Remember grade two, we just moved to Israel. And I was going to Hebrew school and I didn't speak a word of Hebrew. So the principal was tutoring me and I, I literally, I can see in my mind the first time I went out to recess at Hebrew school in Jerusalem as like the one white kid in the sea of short, dark-skinned Israelis. I was tall and thin and platinum blonde, blue eyes. I looked kind of like a girl. I was thin and graceful. You're like, what happened? I know. <laughs> the ravages of time. I can picture it now, standing and looking at the playground, and Israeli kids are a little bit out of control. And uh, it was like, what am I supposed to do with this maelstrom? And within 10 minutes, some kid wanted to fight me. And I realized, not everybody likes me. And it was a dark moment. I remember moving back to Canada in grade 9. And going to a Canadian high school for the first time. I remember walking up and seeing the smoke pit. This doesn't exist in Israel. It doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Now they just vape secretly around the property. But we used to have a smoke pit like this. Everyone goes and they, smokes, they smoke over here. And I was like, what on earth? And I walked into school and we were fairly poor. We were missionaries. And so my parents couldn't afford to buy me um, Levi's 501 red tabs. They could only buy me the orange tabs. And if you are a contemporary of mine, somewhere in your mid-30s to mid-40s, you will remember that it was very important to have the red tabs, not the orange tabs. But I was from Israel. I'm like, hey, man, no Arabs are fighting me today. I'm good. I was happy to be there. And I walked into school, and kids started heckling me for my funny jeans. And I went, wow, these people are really mean. My entire life as a church planter and formerly as a producer and writer in film and television, I just was routinely shocked every time I ran into somebody and realized that they were working against me. Has that ever happened to you? You're like, this person hates me, and I just met them. Like, am I that ugly? Like, what did I do? And you realize that they want to see you fail. And this is a dark moment because you realize that life is nasty, and it's full of nasty people. Like in Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do. We've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Eshar Hadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we will build alone to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Achashverosh, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithradath, and Tabil, and the rest of their associates, they wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rechum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. 
Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria, and the rest of the province of beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impeded. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You'll find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rechum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in blah, 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 and Samaria, and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. Here it is. And now, the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rechum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Verse 24, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Nasty, nasty people. It's an interesting chapter. It's uh, got a confusing sequence in it that uh, I can't wait to explain to you. We see here in uh, Ezra 4 a very simple thesis. Um, Opposition is real, but hope is found in Jesus, and that hope is real too. That's your thesis, okay? Opposition is real, but so is hope in Jesus. And I hope to show you this morning four ways to access that hope as found in Ezra chapter 4. So opposition is real, but so is hope. And I hope to show you four ways to access that hope. Here are the four ways that I believe you can access the hope that is found in Jesus. One, you need to know why opposition might come. Okay, If you want to have hope, you need to know why opposition might come in the first place. Secondly, you need to know what opposition might look like when it arrives. You need to know why it shows up, and what it looks like when it comes. Thirdly, you need to uh, find some kind of archetypal hope to help you through. Archetypal, from the word archetype. You need to find an archetypal kind of hope to help you through. And finally, four, it'll help you to remember that you know how the story ends. These are the four things that might help you access the hope that is found in Jesus in the midst of a life that is sometimes filled with opposition. Number one, why might opposition come? This is found in verses one through three. First, let me define the terms. Opposition, opposition, an act of setting opposite or over against the condition of being so set, hostile or contrary action or condition, opposition. I will use another word for opposition. It's resistance, 
Okay, resistance, resistance, an opposing or retarding force, a psychological defense mechanism wherein a patient rejects, denies, or otherwise opposes the therapeutic efforts of a psychotherapist, of, relating to, or being, exercise involving pushing or pulling against a source of resistance. Resistance. This is one of the most important books I have ever read. It is The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I highly recommend it to you. It is absolutely life-changing. The unlived life. Most of us have two lives. The life we live and the unlived life within us. Between the two stands resistance. Have you ever brought home a treadmill and let it gather dust in the attic? Ever quit a diet, a course of yoga, a meditation practice? Have you ever bailed out on a call to embark upon a spiritual practice? Dedicate yourself to a humanitarian calling, commit your life to the service of others? Have you ever wanted to be a mother, a doctor, an advocate for the weak and helpless, to run for office, crusade for the planet? Campaign for world peace or to preserve the environment. Late at night, have you experienced a vision of the person you might become? The work you could accomplish? The realized being you were meant to be? Are you a writer who doesn't write? A painter who doesn't paint? An entrepreneur who never starts a venture? Then you know what resistance is. One night I was laying down. I heard Papa talking to Mama. I heard Papa say to let that boy boogie woogie because it's in him. And it's got to come out. John Lee Hooker, boogie chillin'. Resistance is the most toxic force on the planet. It is the root of more unhappiness than poverty, disease, and erectile dysfunction. To yield to resistance deforms our spirit. It stunts us and makes us less than we are and were born to be. If you believe in God, and I do, you must declare resistance evil, for it prevents us from achieving the life God intended when he endowed each of us with our own unique genius, Genius is a Latin word. The Romans used it to denote an inner spirit, holy and inviolable, which watches over us, guiding us to our calling. A writer writes with his genius. An artist paints with hers. Everyone who creates operates from this sacramental center. It is our soul's seat, the vessel that holds our being in potential, our star's beacon and polaris. Ooh, I'm getting the Holy Ghost. Every sun casts a shadow. And genius's shadow is resistance. As powerful as is our soul's call to realization, so potent are the forces of resistance arrayed against it. Resistance is faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, harder to kick than crack cocaine. We're not alone if we've been mowed down by resistance. Millions of good men and women have bitten the dust before us. And here's the real problem. We don't even know what hit us. I never did. From age 24 to 32, resistance kicked my butt from east coast to west and back again 13 times, and I never even knew it existed. I looked everywhere for the enemy and failed to see it right in front of my face. Have you ever heard this story? Woman learns she has cancer, six months to live. Within days, she quits her job, resumes the dream of writing Tex-Mex songs she gave up to raise a family, or starts studying classical Greek, or moves to the inner city and devotes herself to tending babies with AIDS. Woman's friends think she's crazy. She herself has never been happier. There's a postscript. Woman's cancer goes into remission. Is that what it takes? Do we have to stare death in the face to make us stand up and confront resistance? Does resistance have to cripple and disfigure our lives before we wake up to its existence? How many of us have become drunks and drug addicts, developed tumors and neuroses, succumbed to painkillers, gossip, and compulsive cell phone use simply because we don't do that thing that our hearts, our inner genius, is calling us to? 
Resistance defeats us. If tomorrow morning, by some stroke of magic, every dazed and benighted soul woke up with the power to take the first step towards pursuing his or her dreams, every shrink in the directory would be out of business, prisons would stand empty, the alcohol and tobacco industries would collapse, along with the junk food, cosmetic and infotainment businesses, not to mention pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, and the medical profession from top to bottom. Domestic abuse would become extinct, as would addiction, obesity, migraine headaches, road rage, and dandruff. Look in your own heart. Unless I'm crazy, right now a still small voice is piping up, telling you as it has 10,000 times the calling that is yours and yours alone. You know it. No one has to tell you. And unless I'm crazy, you're no closer to taking action on it than you were yesterday or will be tomorrow. You think resistance isn't real? Resistance will bury you. You know Hitler wanted to be an artist? At 18, he took his inheritance, 700 kronen, and moved to Vienna to live and study. He applied to the Academy of Fine Arts and later to the School of Architecture. Ever see one of his paintings? Neither have I. Resistance beat him. Call it overstatement, but I'll say it anyway. It was easier for Hitler to start World War II than it was for him to face a blank sheet of canvas. You're welcome. I read a lot of books for you. Real, and it's a moment... You need to know why it might show up. Verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard. <sighs> Resistance will show up because sin is, is real. And because sin is real, you have real enemies. Who are your enemies? Satan, sin, death, and hell. And everyone allied with them. I don't often say that last bit. I often tell you that your great enemies are Satan, sin, death, and hell. But everyone who is allied with the powers of Satan, sin, death, and hell is also your enemy. It's very important that you understand the gospel. Okay, as Christians, we believe that God exists, that he's good, and that he made everything that is. He made it all good, including human beings to be his friends forever. He gave us the freedom to choose to love him in response. Gave us one command. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, blew it. They disobeyed his one clear command, and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though God told them that in the day they eat of it, they will surely die. And so death came into the human story. And I just want to remind you that death is not just about dying. Death is about all the number of small deaths that exist between birth and death, because every time you sin against someone, something dies in that relationship. You know this because it's happened to you, and you have done it to others. Sin is rampant, and at work, in the human race, and is the reason our world is broken. It is the reason that all the many ills that Pressfield outlines in that first chapter of his book are also alive and well in the world today, because sin is real, and because of it you have real enemies. And because the problem of sin is so dramatic, God himself decided to step in, sending God the Son to become the man Jesus, so that in the fullness of time, when everything was ready, he could go to a cross, where he, this God-man, who had never sinned once, who in every way had perfectly fulfilled his Father's will, would suffer and die in your place for your sins, but not for your sins only, for the sins of the whole world, so that the punishment for our peace might be upon him. And this good man, this God-man, Jesus, died, and they laid him in a tomb because he paid the price. But because he was God-made flesh, he did not stay dead, but he rose again the third day, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. And he appeared to his friends, and then a few days later, right in front of their eyes, he ascended back to his father's right hand, where he sat down in victory, where he sits even now interceding for you. We'll talk about that in a moment. And one day he's going to get up from his seat to come back, to set all things right, to judge the living and the dead. And to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you have a place if you belong to Jesus.
Jesus dealt with our sin problem. What does sin do? Sin fractures our relationship with God, and it fractures our relationship with others. What's lovely about sin is that you don't need to convince anybody that it's real. They spend most of their time in denial until their marriage begins to fall apart because one of them had an affair. And then all of a sudden, the whole family is very aware that sin is real and its consequences are horrendous. You can take that same example and apply it to any situation in your life that you've experienced where sin has done its dirty work. And you can't answer it in your own strength. You need some help from the outside, which is why God became a man. Let me say this. Everyone who does not worship the real God of the universe ultimately worships the false God of self. And when your wants and desires are at odds with their wants and desires, you become their enemy. This is how life is. So how are you to fight that enemy? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. Okay, you overcome opposition by remembering that it's real, and so also are gossip and envy. This is what's happening in verses 1 and 3. When the adversaries heard about the builds, how would they have heard about the build? All of a sudden, endless processions of goods are coming south from Lebanon and from the quarries, and hundreds, in fact, thousands of people are raising a cloud of dust as they hew these stones and lay these timbers and sheet the metal on it and, and do all the many hundreds of tasks were required to build a building of the significance of the temple. It took decades to get it done. And so the people of the land noticed. And all of a sudden they want in on it. Because wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want a piece of the action? So they go to the Jews and they say, hey, we want to help you. And the Jews say, no. And then all hell breaks loose. I want you not to underestimate the economic factor here. Okay, the economic factor lies beneath the text. Right? It doesn't say that the people of the land were jealous because of all the goods and services involved in the building of the temple. But as I read it, I was like, for sure, for sure. Think of the hundreds of jobs that were at stake in this build. Think of the vast wealth that was being put into the city of Jerusalem. If you lived anywhere near it, you would want in on it. How do I know? Because on some level, post-Eden, life is all about survival. Right, let me just say it. Your coworker would fight you to the death in another era for that promotion. Why? Because at the end of the day, they would rather your family starve than theirs. This is the hard truth of the human experience. Except these days, instead of fighting you to the death, they'll send you nasty, passive-aggressive emails. They'll try to hijack your meetings, and then they'll throw shade at you on social media. Could I get an amen in this house? Or is it only me that this happens to? All right, I got one brother with me today. Everyone is out for themselves. Why could this be helpful to you? Because it's not even really personal. You think they hate you. They don't hate you. They're afraid of death. And they will do anything to stave it off, including running you over with a half ton. Doesn't matter. If they perceive you as in between them and provision, they will wipe you out in the name. Why? have no hope. They're acting on self-preservation instinct. It's not even really about you. My question to you, because I care about you, is this. Um, are you living that way? Are you living like as a slave to your self-preservation instinct? Or are you living free in Christ? Make sure you're not actually living like an idolater. Why would I say such a thing? Because of the text. Because of verse 2. 
the people of the land approached Zerubbabel, the heads of the father's houses, and said, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him for years. And the Jews say, No, you have no part in this. Why not? These people were imports. They were imported from Assyria generations previously. Okay, and they were settled in the land. And they continued to worship their gods from Assyria, and they adopted the worship of the gods of the land of Canaan. If you don't know anything about the gods of the land of Canaan, maybe look it up sometime. There was one fun one named Astart or Astoreth, and she was the goddess of fertility. Her rites were pretty fun if you were a man. There's a horrible, well, I don't want to get to him yet. The main god was Baal, the god of thunder. Because the Canaanites are like, thunderstorm. Whoa, we better bow down and worship whoever made that happen. Kind of makes sense. Baal, the god of thunder. The god of harvests. The real dark one is Molech. He went by other nasty names. He's the god of fire. You have to burn your children to him every once in a while to assure a good harvest. I got to say this gently. So I was thinking, you know, what does child sacrifice have to do with any of us? And I thought about all the North American Westerners who sacrificed their children on the altar of prosperity, working their 16-hour days, never home for dinner. (laughs) The problem with these people, oh, let me tell you why they started worshiping Yahweh. God was upset, so he sent lions among them. (laughs) Can you imagine how weird is the Bible? Super weird. Um, This is in 2 Kings 17. No joke. So they write, they're like, there's lions eating us. What are we going to do? So they literally send a Jewish priest from Assyria back to Israel to teach them how to worship Yahweh. Because they're like, if you start worshiping Yahweh, maybe he'll stop the lions. So they start worshiping Yahweh, and he stops the lions. But they persisted in the worship of other gods. And that sounds a lot like us. Because we worship Jesus and money. We worship Jesus and security. We worship Jesus and fame. We worship Jesus and safety. We worship Jesus and the esteem of others. I mean, pick your poison. See, if the real God of the universe is really real, and as such, he really detests it when his creatures worship gods that aren't real, you like that? You might be facing opposition because you're really worshiping the wrong God. Opposition may come because sin is real, and therefore you have real enemies who worship self, gossip about you, envy you, and who are helplessly caught in the self-preservation loop because they're worshiping the wrong God. There's also a good chance half of us are acting like them half of the time. That's why resistance shows up. But what does it look like? Point number two. We see in verses four and five where resistance looks like. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius of Persia. So here's what uh, opposition looks like. It looks like discouragement, fear, bribery and politicking, and frustration that lasts for a long time. Discouragement. You know what this is in the Hebrew? Weakened the hands. If something is trying to make you stop your practical rhythms, it is resistance. Weakening the hands. Resistance looks like fear from the Hebrew. 
made, decayed, and flustered. If your gift is rotting from lack of use, or you're feeling panicky, it's resistance. Bribery and politicking from the Hebrew, and hired on the counselors to quash their counsel. Is someone spending resources, it might even be you, to try and squash what you know in your heart is right? If someone is doing that, it is resistance. And this may go on for a long time. Weakened work rhythms, decaying natural gifts, resources being deployed to crush you. Life is a battle. Obedience to Jesus is the key to victory. How do I know? I know because I have read 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. What did Christ command? I read it to you for invocation this morning. Christ commanded you to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. A friend of mine pointed out to me recently that I do not emphasize the love your neighbor as yourself part enough, and I want to correct that. Love God, love neighbor as yourself. Love yourself too. Love God, love neighbor as you love yourself. You fight the war with love in hope because of Jesus. So, It is my very great pleasure to give you now, with point three, some archetypal hope from verses 6 to 23. And the sermon will be done in two and a half minutes, as long as I don't stop along the way to meander through the daisies. What happens here in verses 6 through 23 is a narrative jump from real time. Okay, the real time of our story is the years 538 to 515 BC. So that is the real time of our story. What happens here in verses 6 through 23 is a narrative jump to the time of Xerxes which occurred between 485 and 464 B.C., and his successor, Artaxerxes, who ruled between 464 and 423. Why does the writer of Ezra take this narrative leap here? To make an archetype point. He wants to say this sort of thing always happens. Let me define the terms. Archetype, the original pattern or model of which all things of the same type are are representations or copies of. Archetype, a perfect example. So if the specific, specific difficulty you are facing is archetypal, if your little piece of pain is part of a much wider worldwide historical problem, you're going to need an archetypal type hope as an answer. The kind of hope that we have in Jesus that turns verses 6 to 23 into a picture of future triumph. So let's interpret verses 6 to 23 archetypally here. If, like in verse 6, the enemies of God's people sent an accusation against them to Xerxes, it might help you to remember that in the Hebrew, the word for accusation is sitna. What does that sound like? Sitna. Sounds like Satan. Satan got his name from the word accusation. Well, they call him the accuser of the brethren. So that's why he is that 
guy. He's the accuser of the brethren because sitna is the word for accusation. And if Revelation 12.10 is true, he accuses you day and night, but you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, as recorded in 1 John 2.11. So when you're accused of sinfulness, put your hope in Jesus' righteousness. If, like in verse 12, God's enemies are worried about the fact that God's people are rebuilding. I want to say this morning, they should be because we are. Okay, we are rebuilding. So, pastoral point, celebrate your work in progressness. How often do you feel frustrated because you haven't completed the task? Stop it. Celebrate your work in progressness because God's people are rebuilding. If, like in verse 12, part B, God's enemies are worried that the walls and foundations are being rebuilt, they should be because walls equal safety and foundations represent the source of life and hope. And I'm here to tell you this morning that there are 12 gates with 12 angels at them with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on them, built into the great high wall of your eternal home, the new Jerusalem, if Revelation 20. 1, 9 through 27 is true. And the 12 foundations of that city have on them written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, which means, church, that your future is very safe and your source is Jesus as introduced to you by the apostles, which is why we preach from the Bible. So I say, let the enemies of God tremble. If, like in verse 13, God's enemies were worried that one day you'd stop paying tribute, custom, or toll to evil oppressors, they were exactly right because Jesus paid the price so you don't have to anymore. If, like in verse 15, any enemy of yours appeals to a book of records to try and steal your freedom, they keep bringing up again and again and again and again all the bad things that you did or that happened to you in the past, I'm here to tell you that the only book that matters in the end is the Lamb's book of life out of Revelation chapter 20. So make sure that your name is written in that book. And if your name is written in that book, don't let nothing stop you. If like in verse 16, God's enemies were worried that one day no foreign king would have any possession in the promised land, they were prophesying because one day evil shall be entirely dispossessed. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away revelation 21 4 worship team you better run to this stage and if like in verse 20 they're darn right that mighty kings have been over jerusalem because one day the king of kings and lord of lords will make it his eternal home and you will live with him in the place that he has prepared for you if john 14 2 is right and if like verse 21 i need to remind you that no decree from no king is going to stop the rebuilding of the city of God because I'm told in scripture that the gates of hell herself will not prevail against the church of Christ as written in Matthew 16, 18. So I'm pretty sure that every problem you're facing will one day bow the knee to him too. It may take some time, like in verse 24, where we you know, end up waiting 15 years until Darius takes over from Cyrus, but I'm here to tell you because I love Jesus and I love you, you have all the time in the world. Why? Because point four, we know how this story ends with the people of God sitting down to dinner with God in the city of God. Revelation 19.9. So next time you run into resistance, smile at it and tell it about your Jesus.